Jobs Summit Clash, Trump Raided, Good News About the Great Barrier Reef, this is the 100th episode of The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and joining me live from our home in central <laughs> Victoria is the lovely, the sometimes absent, but never in our hearts absent, <laughs> best-selling author of QAnon and on a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, and my wife, the great and glorious Van Batum. How are you, Van? Hello. I am literally your legal wife. It's hilarious. Um, I also have this puppy on my lap. So apologies in advance if anybody hears any sort of strange movie noises. Uh, He is being a bit of a sook. He is being a bit of a sook. It is quite cold here, as I'm sure it is around much of Australia, as we still in winter, it seems hard to believe. But Good news on the winter front is that it seems as though COVID has peaked around the country and is starting to come down. Thankfully. Yes. But then I promise that uh, I won't continually reference you being uh, my wife for the next 100 episodes of The Week on Wednesday. Of course, this is our 100th episode and it is almost hard to believe that we have made 100 Week on Wednesday episodes on Wednesdays. That doesn't include all of the weekend wraps that we've done. Just thousands and thousands of hours of content. <laughs> yeah. So if a if a work day is three hours is eight hours or three hours, a dream of a work day of three hours. God, that was a bit of wishful thinking that came out, didn't it? We'll see what the job summit comes up with. Yeah. yeah so uh, on actually, I can't do the maths at the moment, even though I'm usually pretty good at maths. You know, it'll tick away in the back, and the calculation will come out at some point. But a hundred hours. Of the week on Wednesday. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. You could spend like days of your life just listening to us, rattle on about macroeconomics and uh, left-wing politics. If you are listening to this at home and you have listened to every episode of the week on Wednesday, drop us a line on Facebook, And we'll do a shout-out for you. Email, wherever, um, whether – yeah, absolutely. Um, Of course, we give a shout-out to all of our cadre and Extend the Reach supporters at the end of every episode – uh, and have done that for the last six months. We'll continue to do that. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday if you want to become a supporter. But if you even if you're not a supporter, if you've listened to every episode of the week on Wednesday, do let us know. If you've joined your union, of course, we always encourage people in every episode to join their union. Literally our favorite stories are people going, yeah, I got involved in the union. And I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, of course, we will talk about uh, the union movement a little bit today because the job summit is a big story. But of course, you can join your union while you listen to the show online at australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's W-O-W for the week on Wednesday. Uh, and we love to hear those stories as Van, as you've just said. So look, let's get into it because we're going to, we're going to do a bit of globe trotting today. We're going to talk about some very Australian story. And then uh, we want to talk about what's going on in the US because Van- It's bad. It's bad. And we've had some of our cadre supporters contact us going, can you talk about it? Yes. So- yes, I can. I love talking about what's going on in the United States and Britain, by the way. So we will, we will talk about that. A bit that of New as- Zealand, a bit of Ireland, a bit of Canada. You're, you know? you're, a, you're a citizen of the world. Well, I'm a citizen of what they call the Anglosphere because of my extremely impoverished knowledge of other languages, which is a grave shame. But uh, English-speaking Western liberal democracies, I think I can handle. Well, we will we will go to America shortly. But first, I want to 
talk about the Jobs Summit because today there's been some clashes around the Jobs Summit. It's literally hilarious. It's quite amazing, really. You know, when Albo announced that he was going to have this summit, the first thing that happened was Angus Taylor, who is the shadow treasurer. uh, Everybody knows who Angus Taylor is and not for any good reason. Yes, sorry, doing a little song there. But he demanded to be invited. Demanded. Absolutely demanded. How dare you have a party without Angus Taylor? Um, Of course, Peter Dutton was sceptical at first and then went on holiday and who knows what he thought while he was over there. Susan Lay has called it a stunt. Has she? Susan Lay, who put an extra S in the middle of her name. So she would have an amazing life. And by the way, if you haven't uh, seen the interview with Susan Lay explaining why for numerological reasons she added an extra S to her name, it is awesome and you should because I just knew I would have an amazing life. I just think it's interesting that that person accuses other people of conducting stunts. That just seems like is there a club? She she has an amazing life. Indeed she does. Uh, but, of course, David Littleproud, who leads the National Party. Who in- wanted to join the National Party from the age of six, he said. What wow. a fascinating child he must have been. Um, the Nationals, of course, are the junior party of the coalition, uh, get around, you know, 4 or 7% of the primary vote nationwide, has said that he would go if asked, saying that he thinks it's important that we do have a voice at whatever forum is provided. I mean, David Littleproud just strikes me as as always being at the kids' table. Like, I just don't think he's ever... He'll always be that six-year-old who wanted to join the National Party because <laughs> after that announcement, how could you ever possibly think of him in any other way? It just, it just blows my mind. So you've got Dutton. So Jim Chalmers has invited Peter Dutton. So the, the, the Labor government has invited Peter Dutton or his representative to attend the summit, the Jobs and Skills Summit, which is going to have a hundred. Holly Hughes, Shadow Minister for Private School Mothers who don't really like having you in their house. Yeah. Yeah. He could send her if he wanted to. Like he could send whoever he wants, basically. They've said, send someone, like participate. It's going to be a hundred people from. Simon, Bir- Simon Birmingham, no one can tell him apart from the wallpaper anyway. Right. You've got AIG, the Australian Industry Group, the Business Council of Australia, the ACTU. You're going to have, you know, large employers. Large employers like Tories. organisations. You yeah, know, you're not going to be lonely. You'll have people to sit next to at the lunch table. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Emitters, fossil fuel companies. There'll be, it'll be a, an eclectic bunch, right? But he's not, he's just, he's not attending. He's refused to attend. And of course, because he's not that interested in jobs or skills. I mean, nine years of coalition government made it pretty clear that particularly skills were not something. They used to talk about jobs a lot, yeah. by which they meant uh, temporary guest worker visas, a million of which were issued a year to uh, to um, workers who, um, you know, were easily exploitable for various cultural reasons who mm. were shipped into Australia. But skills, how, how many apprenticeships disappeared under the uh, coalition government, Ben? Bazillions. Yeah, 1.140,000 apprenticeships were cut under the coalition. So it's- Tax on universities, tax on TAFE, not really a pro-skills kind of movement, our friends at the coalition. But Holly Hughes does have some lovely pearls. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's really- it's really quite striking. You know, your colleague Catherine Murphy at The Guardian wrote an interesting piece at the end of last week talking about Albo validating the role of unions in society and how the Jobs Summit 
was a way of bringing unions and business together, like a genuine way of bringing business together. And that Albo- The kind of tripartite economic planning that has made Germany one of the strongest uh, economies in the world. Yeah. That, that kind of- and that Yeah, and that Albo didn't take a victory lap on business over the emissions reduction uh, legislation passing. You know, he didn't say things like, oh, you know, I welcome business to the table even if it is 10 years late, which Catherine Murphy said in her article that she would have done, right, that actually Albo was more interested in building a political consensus for the Jobs and Skills Summit to bring about real macroeconomic reform. So while you've got Albo as Prime Minister doing that, You've got a Peter Dutton and Susan, I spell my name with two S's, lay. Because it's given me an amazing <laughs> life. Such an amazing life. Amazing. Out there calling everything a stunt. I mean, they called emissions reduction legislation a stunt. They've called the Jobs and Skills Summit a stunt. I think it's because they didn't really govern for nine years that doing anything sort of looks conspicuous to them. <laughs> I think that's what's going on. There was also an amazing uh, quote from Jane Hume. Yeah. Who at some point was in charge of superannuation, a thought that still terrifies me at nighttime. Um, she's a liberal, of course. I mean, she's yeah, yeah. pretty much from central casting. And Jane Hume was like, oh, you know, Albo is just going to side with the unions. And it's like there might be a bit of a giveaway in the name Labor Party <laughs> chain. Like I think perhaps if you look at who, who gets involved in the Labor Party mm. and why it was founded, why it exists, what its ideology and priorities are, that's highly likely. In fact, the kind of Labor Party we want is one that listens to the organised force of working people, Jane. Clearly the Liberals have decided this is somehow or another a weakness, right, That because they are every day in Parliament in the last fortnight, they just attacked Unions. Saving you. They're coming to get us. Saving you. Like it was just crawling amazing. out from under the beds, demanding workplace safety. <laughs> ah, what goblins! I know. So they've attacked unions there. That Sky <sighs> Sky News is attacking unions and the Jobs and Skills Summit and, and the union women, transgender people, like it's, foreigners. It's it's a real uh, pivot to the right. You know, there's no question that Dutton is absolutely playing to that audience. Uh, at the moment, and there's a really great quote that uh, Jim Chalmers, uh, so Chalmers has obviously extended this invitation, Dutton has rejected it, uh, and Chalmers has said of Dutton, here's a less constructive version of Tony Abbott, here's a less inclusive version of Scott Morrison. That's a bit of a death knell, isn't it? Can you imagine? Less inclusive than Scott, I ran Catherine Deves in Warringah Morrison. Okay, no problem. You know, I'm going to say this quite honestly, as a Roman Catholic, I found Scott Morrison a bit terrifying. I got a bit of a touch of the the burning pyres around yeah. Morrison, you know. And it's just it was a, it was kind of I got a heavily sectarian vibe. Can I just say, you know? Anyway, uh, it is absolutely extraordinary. It's an it's extraordinary that, and you can sort of understand it. Like, let's bring the political analysis to yeah. this, where the coalition fatally lost votes wasn't just in the marginals that flipped to Labor and gave Labor this glorious majority. It was also obviously in the teal seats. Yeah. Now, teal voters are socially liberal. Yeah. You know, they don't want the planet to die in a combustible heat bang. You know, they think that maybe being nice to your gay neighbour is a good thing and that women should be allowed to hold down jobs. 
all of this is great. Like, I'm on board. They're all yeah. positions I support. But these are traditional liberal heartlands where our wealthy friends, and these are wealthy seats. I mean, the Teals are not, they're not winning votes in poor country. That's yeah. not what the yeah. Teals are about. Um, I don't even want to think about what it costs to buy a three-bedroom house in a seat like Warringah. I don't even want to imagine it. However, uh, these are people who traditionally really sour on unions and don't really like the idea of award wages. And we're talking about elements of the electorate that split for the teals because the socially liberal pull was stronger, but the the Liberal Party, what's left of it, the rump of the Liberals left in the parliament, mm. is going to be hammering, hammering, hammering the stereotypes of union thugs and wage spirals and unreasonable worker demands and next thing you'll know, these people will want to be able to put three meals on the table and send their children to schools that don't fall down. Can you imagine, Ben, can you imagine if we fund public schools to the level they can take the asbestos out of the roof? Good Lord, the fabric of society would collapse. Well, it- it's interesting because the union movement has absolutely embraced the opportunity of the summit to put forward a view about <laughs> constructive economic relations. Yeah, absolutely. That will benefit hilariously the majority of Australians. And even, I mean, Tony Burke spoke at an Australian industry group uh, conference last week. And Australian industry group traditionally, you know, has members in those teal seats. Who you know they they run businesses they're then part of the AIG they're part of BCA but they sit on the boards of yeah the other they, bi- they, if you're not owning the business you're on the board of another one yeah, yeah. like that's their kind of heart I mean I don't know a lot about rich people but I can make I've watched TV I can, yeah. I can guess yeah and look Tony Burke to his credit went to an AIG conference and and basically said that you know they had to get rid of unilateral cancellation of agreements which yeah. Is, Driving down wages, you know, people- uh, Labor siding with the unions again. Yeah, well, people who <laughs> listen to our show will know that Spitzer, the tugboat company, is still trying to cancel uh, agreements. You can check out there's a, a petition around that that's floating around on Megaphone. You know, this is multi-billion dollar multinational corporation trying to cut people's wages. Qantas has tried to do this with cabin crew. Like this is a bargaining tactic now. The companies just go, well, you either agree to a little bit of a cut or we'll cut you all the way down to minimum wage. And let's be honest, the only thing that is keeping Qantas together as a viable prospect in the economy at the moment is the quality of the staff. Like I just, I can't get over it. So we know that they unlawfully sacked 2,000 baggage handlers. They took $2 billion from Scott Morrison, delivered no jobs in return, spent the money upgrading their fleet. And of course, they've replaced their qualified, experienced baggage handlers with, you know, the the that they could assemble for... Well, they're now talking about using their executives. They're now using... This is what I just I find hilarious. They've asked their executives to volunteer to do baggage handling shifts. Some guys, I think, might get a bit of a rude shock about how hard that work actually is. Yeah, and so much for reducing the cost of it. But, but this I is wanna... the thing... No, no, I want to mention this because this is important because I do... I get really angry yeah. about Qantas, as you can imagine. Um, as lots of people do. As everyone does because Joist has... Inter- I, I, I strong contender for the Macquarie Dictionary Word of the Year is being Joist, which is the experience of flying Qantas and being totally screwed around. And because so much baggage is going missing or being delayed or visiting Sweden while you're in South America... Um, I made that bit up but probably didn't. Um, people are now travelling just with 
with cabin luggage. And of course, there isn't enough space in the cabins. Catching Qantas flights, every Qantas flight I've caught in the past month or so, and obviously I have to travel a lot for work and everything else, there has been a delay because it is Tetris combined with sardines trying to fit all the bags and it's an absolute nightmare. And I want to do a shout out to Qantas staff who are literally the best thing that company has going for them, who are patient and like helpful doing everything they possibly can to minimise the effects of a problem that they did not cause. And it is outrageous, outrageous that a company that so many Australians rely on and Australian businesses rely on that that it has just yeah it is it's fallen so low it, ha- it has fallen incredibly low but I think Tony Burke's point around the agreement cancellations is really highlighted by Qantas and yeah. the kind of the kind of devilish uh, corporate behaviour of, of people like Alan Joyce it's corporate thuggery it is corporate thuggery and in fact. You know, Tony Burke, I've got to say, he went into the lion's den to some degree to go to an AIG, Australian Industry Group Conference, and talk about corporate thuggery, to talk about uh, agreement cancellations being bad for the economy and bad for wages, to talk about the the need to allow multi-employer bargaining as well. This is something that, you know, business has fought against for a long time because once you've got multi-employer bargaining, you start to go, well, actually... Why is it that two people who do the same job but for two different companies who work across the road from each other, one gets paid a lot less than the one across the road? Well, it's usually to do with one has a group of managers who are absolute thugs and the other one perhaps doesn't. Well, once you've got multi-employer bargaining, the power of workers to go, well, we're not going to put up with that in that one place because across multiple places, we have the power to fix that problem. You know, this is a huge step forward. This is why we tell everybody every week to join a union because the more union members there are, the greater the density of union membership in an industry, the better the changes that we can all get. And it's why AIG and so many other business groups came out after Tony Burke gave that speech and said, well, we oppose this. We can't possibly have this. You can't have multi-employer bargaining. Yeah, the whole economy be, will collapse. Yeah, there might be fairness in this. Wage spiral. Wage spiral. Ben, well, there might be a wage spiral. Well, let's talk about wage spiral because Australian unions today have released a report called An Economy That Works for People. Radical idea. In fact- Wow, that's weird. In fact, I think- That's the Herald, out there. I think the Herald Sun and Sky both called it a radical idea. <laughs> I mean, honestly. So, but anyway- the, the, <laughs> The the economy, <laughs> the economy that works for people. You should see some of the books in our house, boys. You yeah. would freak out. That's right. Um, but the economy that works for people. <laughs> one of the key elements of it, Van, is that it does debunk this myth around wage spiral. And there's a graph. There's a graph in it. And Sally McManus has tweeted it. We'll reshare it as well, which shows quite clearly that once the coalition got elected. Profits continued to trend up while investment by business trended down. What this tells us is that inflation- The capitalists are lazy and greedy. The inflation is not happening because of wages. Like we already knew because wages have been going down anyway. But this graph clearly demonstrates that in actual fact, business and greedy corporations are just taking more money out of the system, not investing it running down equipment, running down infrastructure, running down skills in order to prop up profit. Now, so this whole concept of a wage spiral 
is absolute bunkum. We're in a profit spiral. We're in a downward spiral when it comes to investment of, of productive, tangible investment. And what the paper calls for is a refocusing on full employment. So oh, actually- oh, Ben, that's a song to my heart, isn't it? Full employment. Absolutely. Why am I obsessed with full employment? Well, it's one of the great legacies of the curtain Shifley era, right? Is the full employment white paper that- Of meant- 1945, <laughs> which should be a holy text in every Australian household, I've got to say, comparable in terms of its impact on the best parts of modern Australia with the US Constitution or, you know, the Kalavala, the epic of the Finnish people. You know, our values as a society of fairness, inclusion, shared prosperity, collective effort, they're all contained in the White Paper on Full Employment from 1945. Well, this this piece that uh, the ACTU has put out today, and, and as I understand it from what's in the piece itself, uh, they're going to do more of these documents in the lead-up to this summit, um, which, again, just goes to show this is not a stunt. This is a genuine attempt to have a real conversation about how our economy is structured in this country. And, and you know, it talks about full employment. It talks about making decent jobs the number one uh, priority for our economic system. It talks about reforming the Reserve Bank so that it works with other government agencies and has a balanced approach to uh, to how it uh, manages inflation. At the moment, quite frankly, you ask any economist, uh, you look at the re- you look at the treasury papers on this. What the Reserve Bank is doing by putting up interest rates is going to increase unemployment. Like they're they're focused, but on- they think that that's okay. Yeah, this they is do. the problem. They do that. They go, oh well, you know, there's too much heat in the economy, so we're going to put up interest rates because hopefully this will encourage unemployment, so people will stop making wage demands. And if people don't make wage demands, well, you know, expenses won't go. Like it is absolutely nutty and, and it, it doesn't actually exist no. in an economic conversation that's based in uh, facts or evidence. Well, this is the point, isn't it? And we've talked about this before, how what they're doing is they're solving the problem that they experienced last time. When there was inflation last time- In the 1970s. We're was- talking about the 1970s when there was inflation because the oil-producing countries of the world restricted oil supply and the price of crude quadrupled. And there was <laughs> and there was high wage demands at the same time. <sighs> now, that is not the situation now. There is nobody who says that's the situation. The only people who are even raising this as a concern are dyed-in-the-wool Peter Dutton Tories the, because the reality is that- Ten bucks says that Peter Dutton can't even explain what a Phillips curve is, well, even when he's defending the logic of it. Wages have been going down, and this is the point. The RBA has said wages will continue to go down. Somehow or another, they're expecting spending to continue to increase while wages keep going down. Now, that either means people are drawing on savings or there's a magical pot of money that the RBA just thinks is in existence somewhere that people are going to and pulling cash out of. Is it George Soros and the international conspiracy of George Soros's? <laughs> well, look, it's it's a pretty outrageous situation. And, and quite frankly, what the paper goes into some detail around is that a lot of the inflation we're experiencing is being driven by profiteering. And people know this. You can see it every day. You see it in your power bill, your gas bill. The price you pay to fill up your car, the price you pay to fill up your grocery, buy basket, lettuce, all of those 
things, these are massively increased prices. At the same time, the biggest oil companies in the world have more than doubled their profits in the last six months. Oh, look, it's so disgraceful. And we need to situate this in a cultural context that people, a lot of people in the commentariat actually don't understand how economies work or what, you know, what the historical mechanisms for dealing with certain situations are or have been or what they were conditioned by. I saw an extraordinary panel on the drum the other day where the corporate line that, oh, well, you know, productivity's not going up, productivity's decreased. Productivity has gone up. Yeah, productivity has gone up. But this, the panel was like, oh, well, you know, there's been a report from some corporate people that say productivity is declining. So how can we get productivity up, everybody? And it, everybody talked about, you know, their individual productivity. Oh, well, you know, maybe I could work harder and I do think about blah, blah, blah. And it's like productivity is not an individual issue. It is a structural issue. It is about how your industry is how your industry is structuralized to enable a collective productive effort. Because frankly, your impact on the economy and how much money you earn personally, the overwhelming majority of people, unless you're like an international recording artist or Hollywood star who manages to do like an extra album or film per year, then maybe it's an issue of individual productivity. Activity. But if you are like the rest of us poor schmoes who do not exist in the totally rarefied environment of being an individual corporate brand, your extra 15 minutes a day of emailing is not going to have an economic impact. Well, and it's a really good point too, right? Because, uh, sorry. No, because this, this report talks about labour productivity and that's the other point, right? So labour productivity, which is the collective output of workers, of labour, has been going up, even though productivity has been going down. Why has productivity been going down when labour productivity goes up? Because productivity is made up of labour productivity, capital productivity, and multi-factor productivity. Now, what does that mean? You know, every day I'm glad you got that business degree every single day. I'm so into it. But this is why we have This is to, why I married him. But this is why we have to understand these things, because people use these terms interchangeably. They use productivity as a catch-all, right? And it is it is a catch-all term. But when we talk about wages, we should be talking about labour productivity. That is the collective productivity of workers. That has gone up. And in fact, is tracking somewhere around almost three times the average for what workers are producing. The idea that workers should be denied wage gains because the other factors of productivity, that is capital, that is the money, and multi-factor, that is things like innovation, management styles and systems, how they're applied, is not is not growing, that workers should bear the cost of that is outrageous. And quite frankly, that people would sit around on a panel and discuss, oh, well, maybe individually I could work a bit harder. It's not about individuals working harder. It's about what I what, what I opened with, which was capitalists in this country are extracting profit from the system. They're extracting profit from workers' wages. They're extracting profit- From, from workers' productivity. From workers' productivity. They're extracting profit- 
from the capital base. They're extracting profit from the equipment, from the infrastructure. They're extracting profit from price gouging and they're doing all of these things simultaneously because they live in a neoliberal nightmare fantasy where they genuinely have convinced themselves because they paid people to tell them it was true. Mm. That's what think tanks like the IPA and the CIS, that's what they exist for, to literally tell you what you want to hear and it is the wealth will trickle down. You are the engines of the economy. Everything will be at the richer you get, corporate garbage person. The more money will just flow to everybody, even if you are hoarding it and spending it on garbage and not actually investing it in the structures of making more money. It is delusional, but they love it. They lap it up. They're like a, you know, pay to pray Jesus factory. You know, one of those churches, which tells you if you just love God more, you'll be rich and successful and you deserve more things. Well, unfortunately, this is sort of caught on in the late capitalist era. This idea that you can just pay people to tell you total nonsense and it becomes true because you paid them. But unfortunately, reality has this horrible way of imposing limits on your behaviour. Well, it absolutely does because what we're seeing (laughs) is like mass reunionisation of America and Britain. That is very exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And look, the the paper that the ACT's put out has talked about wanting to have some price regulations around things like energy, around things like transport, some some real systemic changes. Also looking at our tax system and putting a, basically a tax on these profiteers. So those people who are just skimming money from the top, skimming money from price gouging, basically disincentivizing them to do that. And those who do do it, taking that money as taxation and putting it back into programs and services and price controls so that ordinary working people aren't buying more super yachts. I saw an article this morning oh my God. that talked about the 2022 or the 21-22 financial year was the best year on record for the super yacht industry. You know, I, when I am king, when, when I'm king, I'm impounding all the super yachts and I'm turning every single one of them into a, a floating reproductive services clinic. <laughs> Every okay. single one. I'm going to go, like, I'm going to sail them up the coast of the United States and get all those women who've been denied their reproductive rights and provide them with free medical care on the super yachts when I am king. Well, look, it's probably not a bad idea because, of course, we've also talked on the show before about how Lamborghini had its best year oh, ever. Jesus, I can't. And we're still going to put up prices. So, like, you know, the price gouging is happening right across the economy. So, on that front, you know, you'd have to say, the ACTU is is to some degree looking out for the little, the little millionaires out there who maybe will get price gouged by Lamborghini or the super yacht manufacturers as well. You know, there's really something in, in the it uni- for, for the for vast everyone. majority of people. Describe the look on my face. <laughs> you look like you're going to stab me in the eye with a knitting needle, um, let alone what you might do to the super yacht people. But look, the other point that they raise, and this will be contentious because Labor has previously said they won't do this, is uh, the ACTU and the union movement has called for Labor to scrap the Stage 3 tax cuts. Which would be great, which is something I publicly advocated for five years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And look, it does disproportionately benefit high-income households. It disproportionately benefits men 
in high incomes, and there is little to no uh, supporting evidence that it will have any economic benefit for the vast majority of Australians. And of course, it is a tax cut that will have to be paid for using borrowed money, which seems like a bizarre way to structure an economic policy. Look, I think I don't understand. Like, I don't understand. I. I understand, well, I understand that Labor voted up this procession of tax cuts in the wake of the federal election loss in 2019. Yeah. Like, I do get that. Um, I understand that there was a sense that there had been an electoral mandate because for reasons that I will never intellectually comprehend, people did re-elect Liberals and Scott Morrison. Yeah. We are a democratic country where, you know, what the majority wants is the the yeah. bedrock of decisions we make around this place. Um that being said, they are economic nonsense. They benefit only a tiny minority of people. The world that we live in has changed. We have just been through and in some ways still going through a major public health emergency. We still don't quite know what's going to happen with monkeypox, which is looking pretty bad. And yeah. here's a recommendation. I looked at photos of people with monkeypox so you don't have to. Don't look for them. Yeah. You don't need to. I have not been enriched in any way by looking at those pictures. Yeah. So don't, don't do it. Um, but I do want to say that, you know, the economic environment has changed. The political window has changed. The mandate is not with Scott Morrison and a bunch of neoliberal extremists anymore. The mandate is with a is with a Labor majority, people who are most concerned about wages and inflation and cost of living and services and having good Medicare and making sure our systems hold in the case of another emergency and investing in climate action. And that position is shared with the people who voted Teal as well. Yeah, absolutely. We are in a position that we haven't been in this country for a very long time where the majority of voters are up for a new economic conversation. And I don't think Labor should should feel shackled to the mandates of 2019. I think Labor should embrace the opportunity to make a, to make an entirely fair argument to the Australian people that people voted Labor and people voted Teal because people want a new social investment. And if we're looking at building the mechanics of climate action, creating jobs, those 600,000 jobs Labor have promised in clean energy and the clean energy revolution in this country, I would be very surprised that even if they represent traditionally economically conservative electorates, the Teals wouldn't back in this as un, like the removal of an unnecessary largesse that belongs in a paradigm of the past that could be spent, frankly, on much better things in line with their own policy priorities. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that the paper calls for is taxation reforms that encourage businesses to actually make capital investment and invest in training and skills and deter distribution of dividends and share repurchases. And this kind of top-end tax cuts really belong to that, as you say, that old paradigm where it's all right. If there's profit in the system, that will trickle down, that will trickle through. So I think you're absolutely right. There's in a-, a democracy, it's all right to change your mind. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, the Australian people did change their mind between 2019 and 2022, and they changed the government as a result. Yeah, and they lived through a 
pandemic that yeah. nobody saw coming in 2019. Yeah, that's right. Here's the question for literally everybody. Do you want a robust like medical system that can respond to any kind of public health crisis with, um, you know, like immediate services and economic support and crisis management and dedicated resources? Or do you want some rich people you don't even like to get a tax cut? Yeah, well, that's right. And we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars over the long term in terms of what these tax cuts would cost the Australian economy. Uh, and that is when you think about when you think about it in that in that scale, you're talking about basically the entire NDIS and federal education funding or all of Medicare and aged care. I'd just like to point out Federation Uni is losing its entire arts faculty. Yeah. Okay? Like the cuts to education in this country are frankly disastrous and they will have long-term impacts. We need more people with liberal arts educations who are capable of being, you know, qualified participants in complex policy conversations, whether it's in government or the media, the public service, you know, non-government organisations, civil society, corporations, all the places where people who learn to analyse text and documents and Mm -hmm. synthesise ideas get employed. We cannot afford to indulge some super yacht customers at the expense of an education system which is falling apart. Yeah, couldn't agree more, Van. Look, um, and look, credit to Labor. One of the first things it did was create uh, Skills Australia uh, to, to really focus on skills. Obviously, the Jobs and Skills Summit you would expect to hear more about education and skills development coming out of that. We know ministers are already having roundtables. Uh, Jim Chalmers tweeted out a picture of a roundtable he's had in central Queensland with stakeholders around skills and education. So we know this is a real and genuine process. We know the union movement is obviously actively participating in it. We know that even the nationals want to participate in it. We know that the business community is participating in it. Really, it just seems like Peter Dutton and Susan, I spell my name with three S's because I live a lovely life. S also stands for Sook, yes. uh, Are the only ones who don't want to participate. And I look forward to seeing more of the kind of documents that the ACT produced today. I want to see this debate happen. And, And people should join their union to be part of it because I know that there are unions having I saw that the ASU was having a, a, a conference today about the NDIS, for example. Oh, and unions taking their members to Canberra and meeting ministers and MPs and being in the policy conversation. As a worker, your experiences are actually really crucial to the yeah. economy, not just because of the work you do, but how your conditions work and what your workplace is like and what your experience of skills and development, all of those things. Like... If there's no union, there's no conversation. And as we know, union workers get paid more, they have safer workplaces. There are so many individual benefits as well as the collective benefit. Look, let's move on because- Because the puppy needs a cuddle. Because the puppy needs a cuddle. Uh, And when we say the puppy needs a cuddle, of course, we are referring to Germanicus, but we should also probably refer to the great big sook that is Donald Trump. Oh, my God. Because if anybody needs sook a Sook is the word. It's the theme of this episode, isn't it? It is. It's it's. There is just a cavalcade of Tory sooks around the world at the moment <laughs> um, because Donald Trump, former president of the United States, no friend of this show, um, has had his home at Mar- Mar-a-Lago. Am I saying that right? Yeah, Mar-a-Lago. Mar-a-Lago raided by the FBI. 
the Federal Bureau of Investigation, uh, and <laughs> because there were 15 boxes of documents, gifts, and letters to the National Archives that Donald Trump, as the former president, apparently just stolen oh, oh. from the American people. We have moved very far beyond the 15 boxes of stuff. Right, okay. okay. Let me let me fill you in on what's yeah, going please. on. Yeah, please. So there is a Presidential Records Act um, tied in with the National Archives in the United States yeah. where literally every single piece of paper that goes through an administration ha- is legally obliged to be held by the National Archives. Because it's owned by the people of America. It's Yes. Not the, not the individual Owned president. by the people of America. The American experiment is government of the people, by the people, for the people. Yeah. Donald Trump, of course, has never been a huge fan of this particular principle. It's government of Donald Trump by Trump, Donald Trump for Donald Trump. Yeah. And um, – Obviously, and some of the analysis that there's some brilliant writing. I, I'm tweeting. You should follow me on Twitter, really, because I just tweet. I tweet the best links. I've got the best American news links, as you can imagine. Anyway, uh, the Trump administration obviously was doing a whole bunch of things which were incredibly dodgy. Yeah, just the 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 full extent of the corruption and malfeasance and cruelty of the Trump administration it, it, is only just. Becoming no. It, it ranges from uh, splitting up families at the border to dodgy grants and and contracts through to attempted coup, right? Like y- yeah. the whole gamut. Is there, there is an extraordinary article in the Atlantic which I have shared about uh, at least three times on Twitter. That's about the child separation policy, how it was deliberate, how people were bullied into supporting it, how people lost their children, thousands of children, yeah. just and it was deliberate. And the cruelty was was the point. Yeah, um, amazing article should win a Pulitzer probably well. Anyway, there are other articles that have come out this week, another incredible piece in The New Yorker about how Trump was trying to politicise the military and get essentially get the military's backing for a coup. Well, th- this blew my mind, right, because General Mathis, who was a Marine general and generally perceived as a fairly conservative figure. Defence Secretary, yeah. Uh, was was, uh, basically blasted by Trump going, why can't I have generals like German generals and when he was- Oh, this was John Kelly who was his chief of staff. All right. So when Trump came into office in 2016, he appointed to very senior positions a number of conservative military guys, including Michael Flynn, who is a fruity fruit loop of fruit. Yes. Okay. And Flynn lasted 26 seconds because he lied to Congress about having an unofficial visit with the Russian ambassador. Yes. Okay. Like there are levels to this, all of which are bad. Um, But there were people like John Kelly, who former Marine General who became Trump's chief of staff, and he referred to them as my generals, my generals, my generals. Yeah. They cottoned on pretty quickly that Trump was a loon and only in it for himself. And all the things that they thought were conservative principles, you know, obsession with the rule of law and authority and honor and the US Constitution, Trump had no interest in any of the, these things. Yeah. And they saw themselves as guardrails against the worst that he could do. And it was quite emotionally shocking for them as this incredible piece in The New Yorker um, made clear, like they were drafting resignation letters and advising one another. One of the advices to the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was make them fire you, whatever you do, don't quit, because whoever replaces you will be alone. But, but 
the thing that blew my mind was when Trump said, I wish I had generals like like German generals, and when he was- And he meant Hitler's generals. Yeah, he meant Hitler's generals. Yeah. And it was pointed out to him that Hitler's generals tried to kill Hitler three times and nearly succeeded, and yet he still had this idea that somehow or another having Hitlerite generals was a good thing. Quite aside from the democracy component, like just a, a misunderstanding of history and a misapplication of it in pursuit of his own sort of fascist power. Yeah, he he is a fascist. Like fascist is a very historically loaded term. It means a very specific thing. And I am always a bit reticent around you don't throw words like Nazi or fascist around lightly. No. All right? These are not And I'm not calling him a Nazi. No, no. He's not. He's not a Nazi, all right? That's got yeah. a specific anti-Semitic yeah. component yeah. that we haven't quite seen expressed or articulated. Unfortunately, the word is yet. Yeah. The word is yet because yeah. there's rather a lot of anti-Semitic yeah. stuff that is beginning to float to the surface, as I will get oh, to in right. a moment. Oh, yeah. So, but fascist, like I said, I don't use this casually, it's absolutely what's going on in America. Fascism is about an unholy marriage of authoritarianism and capitalism that destroys democracy, rules through violence, um, the centralization of power, anti-democratic uh, beliefs and authoritarianism, right, where yeah. a, a government that's supported by rich toadies do whatever they want and enforce that will through violence. That is absolutely what is going on in the United States and America and the Republican Party. And a Democratic Congress, um, I think he's a congressional candidate representative from Texas the other day said it, you know, the, the Democrats can't afford to equivocate. We are the last bulwark between this country and fascism. And it was a brilliant speech because it was true. Yeah. So what we know about Trump was that as it became clear that Trump was in trouble in the election in 2020, uh, that uh, and then eventually did officially unequivocally lose to Joe Biden. Yeah. The um the priority of his administration was to maintain power, and the generals who were working for him, Mark Milley, who was the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they were wargaming coup scenarios. Like they were flying and meeting all kinds of other like international individuals, groups, and the rest of it, explaining the situation in the United States that the military would not allow Trump to seize power. Like these. Were conversations that were actually had. And, of course, what happened on January 6th was that they physically summoned the mob. They had this crazy plan to have fake electors and get congressional representatives to throw out the results and install their own people. And Mike Pence, who was the vice president, wouldn't do it. Mike Pence also didn't get into a car with a potentially compromised Secret Service, which he may never have come back from, is one of the stories going around at the moment. Obviously, the January 6th committee is Mm. a bipartisan congressional committee that two Republicans are on with a couple of Democrats, and they are having these investigations into what the hell happened on January 6th, and there are days of records that are missing. The Secret Service mysteriously wiped all of their phones, so all of their correspondence around January 6th is missing. There are hours of what Trump, everything the American president does is supposed to be written down and recorded, hours that are missing. These records are all gone like literally gone. And all of this stuff, by the way, is completely illegal. Yeah. All of it has to be collected. Now, there's an argument that Trump was very busy in the last weeks of the administration because he was trying to stage a coup. Yeah. Um, and that probably, and though it is a matter of record that it was explained to him numerous times that destroying any kind of federal record is a felony. Yes. It's a felony. Yeah. Um, 
photographs surfaced this week of because there had always been rumors that Trump used to rip things up and put them in toilets to get yeah. rid of them, and photos of documents in toilets have surfaced that are authenticated. Um, Mary Maggie Haberman ran them in the New York Times or in Axios. Like this was an actual thing that was happening. Um, meanwhile, Trump is under investigation in Georgia for ringing up the Attorney General saying, "I need you to find me eleven thousand votes." He's being investigated for various like fraud related issues in the state of New York. Um, obviously, his role in January six is being investigated mm. by the January six committee. This is all by the by. Oh. And Congress has just won the legal right to finally access his taxation records. So to say he's beleaguered is, you know, but it's entirely fair. Like no one is supposed to be above the law in the United States. Literally the point of the rule of law is that even the president is subjected to it. That is the difference between a democracy and a monarchy where the king determines what the law is. Which George Washington was very, very clear about when they offered him president for life and he said, no, no, that kind of goes against the whole point of what we've just gone through in our revolution. Yeah, yeah. The whole American thing was about everybody being subjected to the same rules. I mean, call me out there, but I thought that was a value that was somewhat interested in defending. What shock it has registered to the principled conservatives out there who thought this was what America was, who are learning that Trumpism is just not into this at all. Well, because they've then gone absolutely bananas, haven't they? Oh, well, let me tell you the latest. So Trump was busy running a coup uh, and um, then was out of office and was, you know, physically out of the building but he broke the like broke the law and took a number of documents that were yeah. supposed to go to the archives with him. Boxes of documents. Boxes and boxes of documents. It has been an ongoing process for the past two years to get what he took back. Yeah. yeah. So in January, they convened a grand jury, which are these weird sort of secret courts that America has when they're trying to determine get- if someone should actually face Charges or not. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the grand jury determined that um, they knew there were there was evidence that records had been taken. Yeah. Um, and in February they took 15 boxes of stuff that had illegally, unlawfully gone to Mar-a-Lago and returned it to Washington. And Trump made the argument this was his own personal stuff and they were like, this has been explained to you. No. Yeah. Now the issue is that they have become aware that they were not the only documents in Mar-a-Lago, that Trump had decided which ones he was prepared to relinquish and what he wasn't. So in June, the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, because this isn't a state matter for state police, this is a federal issue, and you can imagine the legal complexities around. This is really complex stuff in America. You've got to get judges to agree to warrants and processes. And that's why they have the the, uh, grand jury, because it's about issuing the warrants and you've got to make, basically you've got to make most of the case to the grand jury and they've got to go, yeah, there's a case to answer here. Yeah. You can issue the warrants, you can- prosecute this to see if it actually leads to uh, a conviction. Yeah. So more than a year after Trump left office, they they went to collect these 15 boxes. Okay. Um, Then they went to see him again in June going, we are relatively confident there is stuff you have not given us. They were given a tour of Mar-a-Lago apparently and shown a basement and shown that, um, you know, everything was fine and everything was above board. Uh, and what happened yesterday was the FBI, who had convinced a federal judge 
to issue a warrant and various experts have said you literally like you could know somebody had committed a crime and not get a warrant like the yeah. the burden of evidence is so high the suspicion is that there is someone in Trump's inner circle who has dropped him in it yeah. which is very interesting um but they they got the warrant to do the raid because they know that material is that that Trump had not honestly disclosed where all the material was. And I've seen a photo of just piles of material being seized out of Mar-a-Lago as well. Like there's oh, yeah. just huge amounts. Well, of stuff. I mean, and we need to talk about what this material is. It could be related to January 6th, that's entirely true. Yeah. Um it could be related to tax like anything. But there are specific acts. There was an article this morning that said this is a national security issue. This could be about um American weapons systems. This could be about American autonomy comic secrets like this is full on yeah like end of the world kind of stuff like the the level of seriousness it could, it, associated with these documents is profound and it could be like it could be really anything right like it could be him trying to hide money that he's given out as contracts to friends and family cash I mean, for pardons i mean it could be anything, it could right? be anything but what's particular, like and there were 100 fbi agents there was no ransacking they did open his safe, yeah. but he had failed to comply with a, with a warrant and, issued in June. And and the and the Trump and the, the Trumpites have gone bananas. Oh, on, it's terrifying. On, on Fox. The the I saw one video of a woman with a giant foam hat outside Mar-a-Lago. There's talk of militiamen uh threatening to shoot FBI agents. Like this is as you say, this is like a fascist response now. It is a total fascist response. It is getting really, really and scary. In fact, they're accusing the democratic institutions of fascism, which, as Goebbels said, accuse your enemy doing what you you yourself are doing. Yeah, and remember, if you've read my book QAnon and on. By the way, if you are interested in this, you should read my book QAnon and on because it's about how we got to this point. Yeah, and it talks about how it's been very deliberate strategy of the Trumpists, the movement around Trump, the neo-fascists. They are actually yeah. neo-fascists, to um, spread disinformation that denigrates people's trust in public exec- uh, public executions, public institutions, that, you know, this whole notion of the deep state, you know, the secret conspiracy bureaucrats who, you know, drink the blood of children they torture under the streets, like and all the crazy QAnon stuff, that this is what's going on. So you have these crazies who are outside Mar-a-Lago, um, you have Trump, he's grifting, he's putting out fundraising emails of course. because he's the most p- p- persecuted person in America and, you know, has never faced consequences for any of the things he's done. This is a man who still has active sexual assault cases being run against wow. him, yeah. has escaped scrutiny at, at, like at every point. And the belief is that one of the reasons he wants to keep running for president is to evade um, his legal capabilities because of, you know, various, you know, legal mechanisms. I mean, he could change the law. He's talking about uh, running again and being elected on a platform to just fire any civil servant who could possibly stand in the way of himself or of his administration because people like Millie, the guardrails, held for the most part during the last administration and were able to stop him from running an anti-democratic coup. But Fox News and, like, all of the crazy people they have on Fox News, people like Dan Bongino, who's a former bodyguard, who's a far-right internet celebrity, who he was on Fox going, oh, you know, this is turning America into a third-world country. Dan Bongino 
literally, you know, does his mm. crazy internet show, was the person claiming Australia was a totalitarian dictatorship because we had coronavirus lockdowns that all of us agreed with and we managed to run democratic elections at exactly the same time. Not exactly an expert on foreign policy. Look, I think, and, you know, for the for the sake of time, I think we're going to have to agree to revisit this because I don't think this is going to go Look, away. It's a, it's a going concern, yeah. um, but it is, it's really interesting what's happening and it's very fragile. I certainly refer everyone to Dana Milbank, who's an American columnist in the Washington Post today, who has put together some of the quotes from Republican congressional representatives and senators who are all claiming as if, you know, the Department of Justice is totally politicised. And the FBI, I want to point out, the director of the FBI is Christopher Ray. It was personally, he's a lifelong Republican who was personally appointed by um, Donald, Donald Trump. J. Trump. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Look, it, democracy is a fragile thing and fascists have always tried to undermine it. Donald Trump is the latest. He seems to be getting much more traction than anyone really since 1945. Hopefully, hopefully the American Republic is able to stay strong and those guardrails stay in place. We'll, we'll talk more about this as it unfolds because yeah. it is an unfolding situation. Van, we have to talk about some good news because, now you quite brought, frankly, the You collapse- brought the good news today. Yeah, the com- collapse of American democracy has dire implications for Australia. <laughs> so uh, we'll talk about that later on as well. But Hopefully it won't collapse. Hopefully no, the guardrails right. will hold. That's right. And, look, there's lots of uh, good people doing good work there. And, you know, credit to... The director of the FBI, appointed by Trump, a lifelong Republican, has executed that warrant in good faith. Uh, you know, there are still obviously some people, even in the centre right of politics in America, who are determined not to allow the far right to win. But the good news is from Australia, which I always love. I always love to say the good news is from Australia, and it's about the Great Barrier Reef. I love the Great Barrier Reef. So In do fact, I. I think most people do, apart from the Liberal Party, not huge fans. Yeah, not huge fans. Um, but the Australian Institute of Marine Science has reported that the largest amount of coral cover in the Great Barrier Reef has occurred since they started monitoring 36 years ago. Yeah, so the Great Barrier Reef has reclaimed some territory, which is nice. Yes. And I think we need to be very clear, the Queensland government, the Palaszczuk government, um, copped a lot of heat for... Uh, anti-land clearing laws and copped a lot of heat for um, land use regulations that were to stop soil runoff. That was um, indicated as one of the greatest threats to the reef. Yeah. There are like there are environmentalists who are sweating blood on the preservation of the reef who have not stopped campaigning. Not to mention small businesses, communities who rely on the reef um, in the tourism industry for their survival that have become so powerfully active in the campaign to save an irreplaceable natural miracle. All of these things intersect. Obviously, there's more to be done. Obviously, there are horrific threats to the reef with bleaching, cranothon mm. starfish that are ongoing, but everything makes a difference. Absolutely. And, and, and look, in the south, uh, in the southern part of the reef, there has been a reduction in coverage because of uh, cranothon starfish. 
but the in the uh, parts north of Cooktown and in the centre of the reef, there's been an increase of coverage between seven and nine percent because of all those intersecting activities that have led to the preservation of the reef. Uh, it, it's really, really important. Obviously, coral bleaching is still a threat to the reef. Uh, the coral bleaching events of 2020 and 2022 were not as bad as. Uh, 16 and 17, thankfully. But of course, this is why emissions reduction is so important as well. Environmentalism every day. Every day in every way. And so the good news is the Great Barrier Reef is growing its coral coverage. That's great news. That is great news. Look, let's move on. We've had a huge, huge episode. Uh, some people may need to listen to that uh, that Trump piece uh, on half speed because I know you, we got through a lot of information about that. But of course, our show isn't possible, Van, without the support of our contributors who have helped us grow our audience over forty thousand downloads a month now, regularly out doing massive corporate media. It, it, it blows my mind. All it, the money that you have contributed to us through our Buy Me A Coffee campaign. Plus some. <laughs> um, we have spent on advertising, growing the audience, promoting the show, and on our production expenses, and, like, it makes a difference. Since we started that campaign and people have been so generous, if they have the money to spare, if you don't have the money to spare, um, it's enormously helpful if you just recommend the show to people. Somebody made a TikTok video the other day, which was just awesome, singing a song about how much they love the show. We're very in favour of that, but organic reach is as important as paid reach, and we're Really, really grateful for your support. Um, our 100th uh, episode news is that Ben and I are doing a week on Wednesday live uh, on a Wednesday at Melbourne Fringe, which will be super exciting um, and will probably involve us dressing up um, and we will let you know all of the details of that. Yeah, I think the tickets will come on sale in the next week or so. Yeah, they come on sale really soon. So you can come and hang out with us and maybe throw some questions at us and we're really excited that we're doing that and it will be at trades hall yeah our spiritual home melbourne trades hall very exciting all right i'm going to read out the names of the cadre are you ready yes let's do it <gasps> at jane c campbell leona gibbon someone at jed carney christine cole justin dando tomorrow james bromwin punch drunk veteran at jenny forster seven joe fleming andrew pascoe cassandal tui addison official ian hampson no twitter for me hannah honda sam harriet alexandra sutherland matt bush no relation richard sands i'm not on twitter glenn robbie brush daniels Cully phillips lee archer linda cartwright at leanne shingles louise moran donna chapman i don't have twitter my name is susan myers at carrie nash 20 billy three mccabe karen will robinson narissa simon at katagal lauren and ash matthew hadley naronga man john sharpen peter bath aaron rollins louise watson also known as red white and blue Lou. Our extending the reach supporters van. Stuart Munn, Adrian Valente, Maritza at Carriedale 68, Frank Knight, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, Pauline Bate, Melanie Denning, Jodie A, not on Twitter, Karen, Penelope Judge, Jan Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, I am into you. Vicky, Hannah, at K Not, Love Your Work, at Didums, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graverse, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannam, Bill Collis, Maura Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham, Oxley, Bake Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Hyninder, Gail Vest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter. Sarah, Elian, and Andrew, Ivis Billet, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Kim Patterson, Lizette Twiddle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, and the real Neverlong Body, Sandy Baumgart, at not Sandy B, and Renee McGee. 
Thank you to everyone, and congratulations on making the week on Wednesday such a success. We are still regularly a top 10 Apple podcast, politics podcast. We're in the news charts. You know, as Van says, like, share, comment, talk about these issues with your friends. Get yourself a copy of the ACTU uh, report. What they're talking about in terms of the economy is fantastic. Keep a track of what's going on in the US and the UK by following Van on Twitter. Of course, tune in on Sundays for the Weekend Wrap where I do a 20-minute quick rundown of the news between Wednesday and Sunday and get you ready for your week at work. And of course, the number one thing you can do to be ready for your week at work is to join your union, australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W. You can join right now. If you haven't already joined while you were listening to us, what are you doing? <laughs> um, I also have some happy news. Someone has revealed uh, you were talking about the woman in the outsized foam hat. Yes, yep. Uh, somebody on Twitter, Rick Wilson, of whom I'm quite a fan, said there must be a German word meaning lunatic woman wearing an outsized joke hat, to which someone called Lars Weinstead has responded, Narren Kappen Kasperin. <laughs> There is actually a word, and I'd just like to salute the people of Germany um, for coming up with the translation. Uh, it means literally fool's cap clown. <laughs> they have a word for everything, those Germans. Until Sunday and until you and I are together again next Wednesday for the week on Wednesday, Van. Love you, Van. Oh, I love you too. Bye. Bye.